Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. I'm Robin. And I'm Savannah. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode, which is highly likely to fall into the category of pretty heavy stuff that we mentioned in the intro. Since you're listening, you already know that this episode is related to the current situation between Russia and Ukraine. Honestly, we had something completely different planned for this week, but it feels really important to be a part of the conversation that's happening right now. It would be entirely tone deaf to talk about anything else, honestly. But we also wanted to make sure that we came to this conversation authentically, in a way that represents what we do on this podcast, creating a foundational understanding of complicated topics so that the proverbial we can come together to work through them. We won't be talking about the ins and the outs of the immediate situation, sharing a play-by-play of movements, or even diving too deeply into the human interest side of things. Not this week, and not in any other episodes that we do during this crisis. There are so many other outlets who are covering that nonstop right now, and we'll share some sources that we trust in the show notes. But instead, we're going to do our best to add context to the conversation by explaining important background information or diving into how a policy works. We want to help you understand what's going on on a deeper level. Today, we're going to try to fill in a gap you've noticed in the coverage of this situation. Why is everyone talking, but also not talking about NATO? And before we can dive into what NATO has to do with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we have to give you the thousand foot view of why this conflict is happening in the first place. Putin doesn't believe Ukraine should exist separately from Russia. It's really what it boils down to. In fact, he believes that without Russia, Ukraine would not exist. His technical argument is that when the Soviet Union was created, a Ukrainian republic was created. So the credit for and essentially ownership of that republic goes to Russia. Now, there are a whole lot of things wrong with this argument, not the least of which being that Ukraine had a long and independent history before it joined the Soviet Union in 1922. I mean, have you ever heard of Olga of Kiev? Absolutely pogger story about a queen hell-bent on vengeance after her husband is murdered. And it takes place in the early 900s. But back on topic, Ukraine has been seen as a key acquisition since before the creation of the Soviet Union. And it spent the better part of 70 years being dominated by Russian politics, 
Russian culture, Russian economics, and even Russian language. That influence, called Russification, by Yale historian Timothy Snyder, peaked in the 1970s when Putin was growing up and forming his worldview. In his world, everything and everyone was Russian. When the Soviet Union came to an end in 1991, the Ukrainian people overwhelmingly supported a referendum claiming their independence. From there, they set to work trying to rebuild a nation. It hasn't been smooth sailing by any stretch of the imagination. Again, that's a conversation for another time. And Russia, led by Putin from 2000 forward, has not done a good job of respecting Ukraine's independence. <laughs> but this interference has seemed to drive Ukraine toward affinity toward more Western ideas, including the potential of joining NATO. You've likely heard the phrase NATO. Probably had it tossed around in school and on the news and just everywhere. And fairly liberally lately, because it's tied directly to the ongoing events in Ukraine. But if you're like me, and possibly us, but I'm not sure, you probably don't know exactly what it is be beyond some sort of alliance that binds a bunch of countries together. Um, but that isn't very useful, and it definitely doesn't help explain why little Vova seems to hate it so much. And just a side note, <laughs> the diminutive form of Vladimir, the nickname, isn't Vlad. It's Vova. And personally, I prefer Vova because it has the potential for wordplay, and that wordplay is just 10,000% better. For those of you whose curiosity won't let you sleep until you know the answer to what Vlad is short for, it is Vladislav. Totally different name. Anyway, back to NATO and the old hairless Vova. See? So many opportunities here. What is it? NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it was formed way back in 1949 to provide security for member states against the Soviet Union. So, I mean, if you're the autocratic dictator of the descendant of the USSR, you probably wouldn't be a big fan of the giant club formed exclusively to keep you out. Yeah, NATO is, it's a really interesting treaty for many reasons, and I could probably name them all if I had actually paid attention to the NATO-specific class that I was in when I was in college. But I didn't. So I did a bunch of reading for this instead. Um, the idea for NATO was developed in the shadow of World War II. Uh, destruction on a scale that nobody had imagined, let alone experienced, had just been unleashed across the globe. Economies were struggling to reestablish themselves, and the transition out of a wartime footing meant that countries that had just been allied against a common foe were forced to evaluate the differences between themselves. And security became a hot-button issue for, well, for everyone, really, um, but especially the European nations. Bringing economies back online required massive infusions of aid while guaranteeing security necessitated preventing a German resurgence. And more importantly for our focus today, the expansion of Soviet-style communism westward. The European Recovery Program, aka the Marshall Plan, named after Secretary of State George Marshall, was the United States' plan to meet these requirements. This plan drove European economic integration and planted the idea of shared interest and cooperation between the United States and Europe. However, it also set the stage for the Cold War, with the USSR refusing to participate in the Marshall Plan itself and denying the option for any of its satellite states. And I really want to get into the full story of NATO with this discussion, but I seriously doubt we have the time. 
After all, that college class was a whole semester. Um, in the interest of time, and so we can get back to focusing on Ukraine, we are, why don't we just like broadly summarize other activities that led to forming NATO? Okay. Western Europe experienced a slew of events that caused many European nations to grow concerned about their physical and political security. The two most important players for us are Greece and Turkey, who were both struggling. President Truman announced the United States would provide both economic and military aid to both countries, as well as any other nation struggling against an attempt at subjugation. Communists were also gaining ground in Italy, threatening to make significant gains in the upcoming elections. Concurrently, Czechoslovakia experienced a communist coup backed by the Soviets, bringing communism right up to Germany. Germany itself was dealing with issues with the occupation and governance it was under post-World War II. So Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin, whom you may have heard of, uh, was blockading West Berlin. Now, this is something that I learned in researching this episode that made me feel really dumb because <laughs> in my head, I always sort of envisioned the, uh, the demarcation between West Berlin and East Berlin as like the, the dividing line between the USSR and Western Europe. Like it was like literally a big line that ran from north to south and on the east side was the USSR and communism and all the boogeymen we've been taught to worry about here in the United States. And on the west side was freedom and democracy and probably an Aldi or something. And I always thought that you could just like go west out of West Berlin if you didn't like all of that Soviet stuff. So you just like leave and get into progressively more liberal and democratic society. But, uh, yeah, that's that's not the case. West Berlin wasn't the tip of a democratic spear so much as an island of tri-nationally controlled territory and an absolute sea of red communist flags. Because West Berlin was in East Germany, 90 miles deep in East Germany to be exact. And the Soviets controlled East Germany, if you were in West Berlin and left West Berlin, headed west, boom, Soviet Russia. North, Soviet Russia. South, east, all Russia. Straight down, believe it or not, Russia. Okay, maybe not. But you get the idea. The place was surrounded. So when Stalin decided to blockade West Berlin, it wasn't like a friendly, hey neighbor, please don't jump the fence. It was more like your neighbor and their family encircled your house and pointed shotguns at the Amazon trucks that came to the neighborhood. The Berlin crisis was, it was a powder keg, and it was just waiting for an errant spark. And it brought the U.S. and the USSR right up to the precipice of war. And that war was only averted by a concentrated effort to airlift supplies to West Berlin throughout the conflict. So those neighbors couldn't quite stop, like, the Amazon drones. And while we eventually got a victory out of that crisis in 1989, which is wild to me that this all happened in my lifetime, well, not all of it, but didn't wrap up until it was in my lifetime, in 1948, all of these events made the U.S. worry that Western Europe would deal with their security concerns by negotiating with the Soviets. After all, they were right there, and the United States was on the other side of an ocean. Truman sought to counter this outcome by forming a European-American alliance, uh, 
committing the United States to fortifying the security of Western Europe. Western European countries were already amenable to the idea of a collective security solution, given the general state of things and their own questions and fears about security. In March 1948, representatives of Great Britain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg had already signed the Brussels Treaty, which bound them together in a mutual defense pact. If any one of those nations was attacked, the others were bound to help defend it. Concurrently, the Truman administration was busily preparing for the next war itself. The peacetime draft had been instituted, military spending was increased, and Congress, at the time mostly made up of historically isolationist Republicans, was being pushed to consider a European military alliance. Senator Arthur Vandenberg proposed a resolution that would allow the president to seek a security treaty with Western Europe that would adhere to the United Nations Charter, but that would not be bound to the decisions of the UN Security Council. This proviso was critically important because the Soviet Union held veto power on the Security Council. The idea of hedging against USSR veto powers would turn out to be prophetic. As we just saw two weeks ago on February 25th, when Russia vetoed the UN security action that would have demanded that Russia immediately cease its use of force against Ukraine, immediately, completely, and unconditionally withdraw all of its military forces from the territory of Ukraine within its internationally recognized borders and reverse its recognition to separatist states in eastern Ukraine as independent. The Vandenberg Resolution passed, kicking off negotiations for the North Atlantic Treaty. Though support for the treaty was there, it took some time to iron out the wrinkles. For example, Western Europe signatories wanted assurances that the United States would automatically intervene in the event of an attack. But the U.S. Constitution explicitly places the power to declare war with Congress, meaning that an automatic provision of going to war because of the treaty would be unconstitutional. Also, the Brussels Treaty signatories wanted to keep membership of the alliance restricted to the original Brussels signatories plus the United States, but the U.S. thought that it was better to expand that membership. Eventually, these issues were addressed, and the North Atlantic Treaty of 1949 was signed, and that included the U.S., Canada, Belgium, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, and the UK. The most famous provision of the treaty is that an attack against any single signatory member was an attack against all of the members, effectively massively increasing the defense capabilities of each country. The treaty came into play almost immediately with the outbreak of the Korean War, which we can talk about later if anybody wants. That war was considered, uh, North Korea was considered a proxy actor for the USSR. Hence, the organization that was built up to defend against it getting involved. Um, Greece and Turkey were added to the treaty in 1952, with Germany joining in 1955. And this expansion caused the Soviet Union to retaliate with its own regional alliance, the Warsaw Treaty Organization, comprising the Soviet satellite states of Eastern Europe. Today, there are 30 members of NATO, with North Macedonia being the latest country to join in 2020. Membership is open to any other European state in a position to further the principles of the treaty and to contribute to the security of the North Atlantic area. And that's in quotes because that is directly from NATO. 
To further assist interested nations in joining the treaty, NATO created the Membership Action Plan, which helps would-be members prepare for membership and meet key requirements by providing practical advice and targeted assistance. So helpful. <laughs> Here's a roadmap to getting to join us. Here's where this episode... It only takes what? How many years? 20 years. <laughs> Oof. Does it really? Uh, there, one country took 20 years. Some The ones that I saw on the, the map, actual map page, it ranged from 5 to 20. I guess it depends on how well situated you are to meet the requirements of NATO at the time that you apply. Yeah, because yeah, it, it yeah. seems like you basically you express to NATO, hey, we would really be interested in being a part of this. And then they evaluate where you are and your map is highly dependent on where you are currently and how quickly you can come up to speed with what they're expecting. So an industrialized country would go a whole lot faster than a country that is not quite as industrialized, for example. Side note from what I saw about this research is that Ukraine had asked to be a member, right? But they were never provided mm -hmm. a map. No, they were never invited to begin that process. Which is required. So they expressed interest. They were not invited. And no, because I think it's because France and Germany vetoed. They were like, absolutely not. So they never got invited to start the process because why start the process if France and Germany are just going to say absolutely not? True. Okay. Well, here's where this episode gets really relevant. Ukraine is not on the list of NATO countries, but their immediate neighbors, Romania, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Poland are. And so are Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which border Russia and its ally, Belarus. All of these countries have joined NATO since 1992, after the fall of the Soviet Union, representing a creeping eastward influence for the alliance. As you can probably guess, Putin does not love that. And there has been talk of Ukraine joining NATO in the past, which he loves even less. Putin claims that when former U.S. Secretary of State James Baker was in negotiations with then-President of the Soviet Union Mikhail Gorbachev, Baker promised that NATO would not move, quote, an inch further east than East Germany. U.S. and NATO officials disagree, saying that no such promise was made, um, but still it would appear that Putin sees NATO expansion into Ukraine as the ultimate proverbial straw. He's demanded that the country never be admitted. There is some conjecture that this invasion of Ukraine is, at least in part, an attempt to prevent further expansion. In the early 2000s, President Bush unsuccessfully pushed for Ukraine to join NATO. France and Germany opposed the idea because it could potentially escalate conflict with Russia, and admittance to the alliance requires unanimous vote. But that's not the only hurdle to admittance Ukraine faces. NATO launched what it calls the Membership Action Plan in 1999 to help countries who would like to join the alliance prepare for membership. It provides these countries with feedback on their programs, facilitates meetings between NATO members and aspiring members, and focuses on defense planning procedures. Currently, Ukraine has not been invited to participate in that process, which can be more than five years long. There are still places in which their national programs are not as aligned with NATO's policies as they need to be for membership. Law reforms, modernization of their defense sector, and economic growth, to name a few. To put it bluntly, NATO wants to ensure its members are bringing benefits to the table and not just risks. 
because signing on more Russian border countries does indeed bring risks. I mean, kind of seems like a moot point at this particular juncture. Why? Because Russia borders practically everything? Because Russia, like, Russia is like, okay, we're going to invade Oh, now. well, they just so make their own borders. And, they, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, if France and Germany are like, well, this will escalate things with Russia, Russia's like, you're darn right. Let's show you. Yeah. So, yeah, if it kind of I kind of feel like uh, if that were if that were the real hang up about it, France and Germany, which should just get on board with the sort of like expedited process, especially because um, modernizing the defense sector is going to be particularly difficult when it's being bombarded by Russian bombs. Yeah, I feel like this is a case. Well, and and maybe back in the early 2000s when they were debating this and and going through all of it, maybe the primary concern was escalation with Russia. But at this yeah. point, I feel like they should probably just be honest and say out loud, we don't think Ukraine can carry its weight in this treaty. And if we're going to come yeah. to Ukraine's defense, we're going to come to Ukraine's defense, whether or not they're a member of NATO. Like, I feel like that is what is being danced around and not being said out loud. I think about the other countries that invade other countries and no one does anything about it then. Thinking about China and what they're doing. So now we know what NATO is and why the idea of Ukraine joining NATO is such a bed of thorns. Let's talk about why it matters, despite the fact that they can't join the alliance and gain its protections. For one thing, essentially the entire world is watching to see what NATO does in response to Putin's invasion. Officially, NATO has condemned the invasion. They also say they've invited Russia to talks in the Russia-NATO Council and that Russia has declined. As far as defensive actions, here's the official statement. Wait, real quick. So they say that they invited Russia to talks in the Russia-NATO Council and Russia declined, but they Russia just met with Ukraine. Was that part right. of, that, that wasn't, wasn't part of the, the council? No. That was independent of Not it? Not that I know that was, of. Yeah, that was just meeting with Ukraine. Official statement. NATO will continue to take all necessary measures to ensure the security and defense of all allies. We are deploying additional defensive land and air forces to the eastern part of the alliance, as well as additional maritime assets. We have increased the readiness of our forces to respond to all contingencies. We have held consultations under Article 4 of the Washington Treaty. We have decided, in line with our defensive planning, to protect all allies, to take additional steps to further strengthen deterrence and defense across the alliance. Our measures are and remain preventative, proportionate, and non-escalatory. Our commitment to Article 5 of the Washington Treaty is ironclad. We stand united to defend each other. Some vocabulary to help you process that statement that we just read. The Washington Treaty is a document of 14 articles that forms the foundation of NATO's beliefs. It's essentially their mission statement. Article 4 of the Washington Treaty states that the parties of NATO will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the parties is threatened. And then Article 5 states that the attack on one is an attack on all. If Ukraine had been a member of NATO, it would be reasonable to assume that we would be facing World War III, in my complete opinion, because it seems like Putin wants to invade no matter what and doesn't really care if Ukraine's a member of NATO. And uh, so if they were a member and he invaded anyway, then yeah, um, I feel like he would, it would be World War III. 
But even without Ukraine's membership in NATO, there are some pretty significant defense situations on the line. Remember that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway, and Poland currently border Russia. If Russia extends its borders to include what is currently Ukraine, Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia will join that list. By any, any movement by Russia against those countries would trigger a response from NATO. What happens then if, a, if Russia invades a member of NATO? The Washington Treaty. In layman's terms, it promises retaliation. It promises actually massive retaliation <laughs> yeah. as the exact language um, for military action against a member. We can also expect that NATO will not recognize the borders that Russia will draw and will continue to call for humanitarian efforts to be allowed to reach the people who need it. That is if Russia is successful in taking over any portion of Ukraine. But the world isn't waiting for that to happen. Members of NATO are currently sending weapons and aid to Ukraine as individual countries. Germany, which is a NATO member, also agreed to increase their military spending and presence for the first time since World War II. But there's also much caution being taken by NATO and its individual members to avoid escalating the situation any further. Yeah. I said it does really feel like some of these NATO member states are done, like just done, because Germany, especially Germany, their reaction to this was is is a huge departure from what historically they have done, especially under under uh, Merkel, who like putting all of this together. Angela Merkel, the the former um, chancellor. They couldn't have stuck Wait. with a P word like the rest of us. President, prime minister, premier. Uh, fun. Well, I mean, there's a reason that Germany wants, well, is concerned, you know, uh, they aren't that far away. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, right. And right. But what I was saying is like, uh, Merkel was typically less um, uh, strict against Russia. Like she she handled negotiations with with putin russians a little softer um and it kind of makes sense because uh she was born in east germany she grew up in in the <laughs> she grew up in a time period when east germany was controlled by the russians not the soviet union is that showing her bias it might be. <laughs> it might be. Um, but, you know, that's uh, what more would you expect from somebody who grew up in basically the country? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's just I that was a really interesting two and two that uh, I had put together for me today, actually. And I was like, holy shnikes, holy spitballs. Um and also one of the one of the reasons I like studying history and, and political science is because of things like that, when all of the puzzle pieces kind of yeah. fall together and you understand why these leaders do the things that they do. Trying to figure out what has pushed Putin to move now, to act now, is it's horrifying that we have to do it at all. But it's really interesting to me because there's so many layers of the story that come into play and the situation with Ukraine, the fact that Putin truly believes that Ukraine is a Russian 
property, if you yeah. will, um, is only a part of it. I, I think the thing that's frustrating me the most about this situation is how in classic American style our politicians have managed to make this about them. And how much posturing that I'm hearing going on right now about, well, if, you know, this wouldn't have happened if Trump was still president because he didn't tolerate any of this baloney or, you know, it's I'm so glad Biden's the president because he, you know, he believes much more strongly in NATO than President Trump ever did. And he's going to be able to get something accomplished. And it's like. How American of us to make this situation involving people helpless, not helpless, but innocent people both on the Russian side and on the Ukrainian side about American politics. We're a world player, but we are not the world. Yeah. That is a better way to put what I was going to say. We tend to forget that. Yeah. That the world, that the sun doesn't rise and set on the decisions of America. It really doesn't. Whoa, fuck me. Um, Social media, social media is wild right now, guys. It's like, this can go into the pot. Like, it is the wild, wild west on social media. You have to be extra careful to protect yourself uh, from horrifying things oh, that will yes. pop up on your newsfeed now. Yes. And I just watched, I, like, I wasn't even paying attention to what I was looking at, and I just watched a missile strike Kharkiv Regional Administration Building in Ukraine. And it wasn't like, oh, look, it's a little and, it, and Michael Bay lied to me. The explosion's not that big. It was no, like, like, oh, Michael Bay directed this missile. We all both seen and, this. No, I didn't see it, uh, but I have accidentally stumbled across plenty so far. Yeah, I've done that too. <clears throat> yeah. I sent it to you, Savannah, if you want why, to. Why? Why? No, I, I mean, don't. Thank you. I see that in my dreams. I'm good. I don't need to. <laughs> I, I figured you can just go ahead and ignore it, but. There was a, a part of. I think I told you guys in the podcast, there was a video on Facebook that showed how a guy was being tortured, and I didn't. Oh, no, that did not come up. Um, my interpreter. <laughs> yeah. When I was in Afghanistan and I saw the people with their arms broken and backwards and their knees broken and all that stuff. Like I saw that then. And then um, I saw when Kabul fell a video of how it's done. It showed up on my uh, Facebook as like out of the blue, my interpreter had shared it and I was, I was, it was just autoplay. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, why is this all here? I have locked down my social media. Nothing is allowed to autoplay. Everything mm-hmm. plays default without sound um, because I can't like I can't handle that shit and I haven't seen it firsthand. So the idea that <clears throat> that there's a not small segment of people out there using social media who have seen that kind of shit firsthand that are just surprised by it. it like that's it yeah. absolutely it unacceptable. It was a tailspin for days because I was like, no, I, I can only imagine because I know what it would do to me and I don't I don't have firsthand experience with that like it's it's unacceptable to me and I as much as I am generally against overregulation of these platforms I do not understand why that kind of content is allowed to proliferate the way that it does so I wonder if the reason is because these are being uploaded through um, non-American servers 
So they are not as regulated as the ones when they reach over to us. Like if I was to share that in a fucking heartbeat, they would get taken down. But these are coming from yeah. Middle Eastern servers and now Eastern servers. So it has servers. to go through that, basically that second layer of processing. Yeah. Uh, that's my it... best guess about why these type of things come up is because they don't have the, yeah, yeah. they don't have people sitting there and looking at something, them. Yeah. And just something to consider is the fact that a lot of these things are being tagged intentionally to get around the AI filters. Um, since there's not, you know, an army of people at meta, like watching everything that yeah. gets uploaded to block it, it relies on AI, you know, recognizing keywords in the descriptions and, uh, people's reactions in the comments stills from the pictures. Yeah. And yeah. Stuff like that. It just takes longer for, for the system to catch these things. And yeah. the other thing is there's, um, possibly an argument to be made for, making sure that the world sees this information and doesn't get comfortable with their distance. That's actually a this really first interesting conversation to We should have, have. that. Well, because it brings um, up the the, yeah. the the public's right to know and the public information um, benefit of a lot of shit, I think gets thrown around in a way that mm-hmm. that allows people to capitalize on horror rather than serve an actual public interest. Um, But that is like propaganda, a soapbox of mine. So we'll just get back to... Man, I would love for there to be nothing to talk about next week. I would love for all this shit to be resolved. Yeah, me too. I could actually get some fucking sleep. But well, that's not going well, I mean, for your Sorry. sake and also the sake of the Ukrainian people, I would love for there not <laughs> to be, be anything awesome to talk too. about. That would be super great. Well, good news time now. Yeah, yes. I think we could use some. Um, what, should, what? Before we get there, oh. we're going to tease it. We're going to tease the good news. Uh-huh. Use that to hook you so you're forced to listen to me say, hey. Go to our website, firesidebreakdowns.com. It's pretty cool. It's got us on it and ways to look at our show notes so you can see all of our sources Mm -hmm. and also ways to leave, uh, sorry, to support us via Patreon and find our social medias. Uh, The most important thing, if you're going to do anything for us, though, is leave us a review. If you're listening on Spotify, which many of you are, according to our statistics, I, I see you out there. Uh, you can leave us a review in Spotify now. Give us, give us, give us five stars. Even if you don't agree with the stuff that we say, give us a review. Let us know. You can review us, good or bad. It doesn't have to. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you're going to say bad too. things about us, maybe just send us an email. That would be oh. super cool, though. Just kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we 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 encourage reviews. No, you should leave we a, encourage an honest and unbiased we're just, review. We're just being <laughs> we, we would just, you know. Don't want to kill our show because of bad reviews. No. Feel free to leave the review that you would like to leave. Yeah. Whatever that review is. Especially if it's nice. Okay. So. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't. What's the good news? Good get news. Us get this out of this. This is, this is actually, it's not just good news. It is great news. It is inspiring news. Uh I woke up this morning and was sitting down to work on the podcast much earlier than I usually get up, and I saw the headline pop up. 
the Snake Island boys are alive. Now, chances are you've heard the story of 13 Ukrainian men on Snake Island in the middle of the Black Sea. A Russian warship in the waters outside the island told the Ukrainian soldiers to surrender. And thanks to the beauty of technology, the entire world was able to hear the men respond, Russian warship, go fuck yourself, before being attacked. We all presumed that those were the last words of brave men who died fighting for their country. But it was fake news, but like the good kind of fake news. The men are alive and as well as they can be, having been captured by the Russians. That absolutely does not sound fun at all. And we are in no way trying to make light of that. But we are overjoyed and inspired by the fact that they are still alive and that their words of defiance have given hope to their countrymen and to us and also a little bit of a fuck you to Putin and an invading military. And also a great tagline for some merchandise. Right? <laughs> That's true. I've definitely seen some people doing that. And if you do buy that merchandise, make sh- make sure the proceeds yes. are going to Ukraine and not to the merchant's pockets. Right. Okay? Because Don't capitalize on war. Right? I mean, we, we, all, we, start. we all love some merch, but Redbubble is probably not the best place to get uh, t-shirts to support the ukrainian independence effort but here is where you can help support organizations that are directly impacting ukraine yes look at that transition so smooth she's getting good she's getting so good so we're gonna call it out (laughs) so this one's a bit of a cop uh this one's a bit of a cop out uh but do consider donating to the red cross via the international committee of the red cross The ICRC has been working in Ukraine since 2014. Their operations in the country are among the 10 largest ICRC operations worldwide. Um, They work very closely with the Ukrainian Red Cross Society. They support uh, their efforts, support uh, emergency assistance, such as food, water, other essential items, supporting hospitals and primary health care facilities, repairing water stations, supporting households to rehabilitate their damaged homes, aiding families separated by the conflict and reconnecting. All great stuff. There's also United Help Ukraine. Um, they do similar work. Uh, the uh, fundraising that they do um, help wounded Ukrainian soldiers and families of Ukrainian casualties. There's uh, Raison for Ukraine, uh, which was born out of the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. Um, and there's also the Voices of Children Foundation, which is a particularly good one, something that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. Um, but they focus on helping children affected by the war. Um, they provide psychological and uh, psychosocial support to children. It helps them overcome the consequences of armed conflict and to develop into happy and healthy human beings. Um, it's a big fucking deal today during this invasion. The future of the world. Hmm? I said that is a yeah, big, huge big deal. deal for the future of the world because. The children who are experiencing conflict now are going to grow up to be the leaders of the next generation. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even now, they are they are working to provide nonstop assistance to affected children and families from all over the country, providing emergency psychological assistance and assisting in that evacuation process. And then finally, this one's a little <laughs> this one's a little more direct, a little non traditional. Um, charity opportunity it might not be your cup of tea but there's a charity called army sos and it uses donated funds to support ukrainian soldiers uh, directly in various ways Um, 
according to its website and Facebook page, uh, the Army SOS Citizens Initiative manages purchases of necessary ammunition, shields, uh, communications and reconnaissance facilities, uniforms, food supplies, basically all the all the things that a, an army needs to do the business of war. Um, and they deliver them those goods directly to uh, the units that are in place and they pass them right into the hands of the of their soldiers. Um, that one totally understand is a little bit of a, <laughs> a strange one yeah. asking you to buy bullets to, for war. But uh, like I said, there are multiple charities right. out here. These are just five of them. If you are interested, you can find the links to these in our show notes along with the brief description. Most of it's been just taken directly from uh, the page themselves. And, um, you know, if you've got some some funds and a desire to help, this is a, an easy way uh, to get involved directly. So Russia is, has done many times tried to expand its borders. So they tried to invade Russia in 2008. I'm oh, sorry. They tried to invade Georgia in 2008. Um, and Georgia tried to scramble to prove its worth to NATO by sending a battalion of troops to Afghanistan um, in 2010. Um, the source is me because I was there. Um, I was assigned to be a Georgian liaison member because the Georgians were given American equipment for their communications devices and they don't speak English. Uh, so how would they be able to operate communications equipment um, in English? So there is a group of 10 of us who were supposed to be sent out in pairs to help the Georgians um, fight in Afghanistan to prove their worth to NATO. Um, and yeah, that was an interesting time for myself. Read the book I wrote about it. Um, <laughs> shameless plug. <laughs> yep. um, you can't read it yet, but you can pre-order it can pre -order. on Amazon. You can pre-order it. Which is essential. Um, essential for guaranteeing at a place on the bestsellers list. Uh, yeah, I've already pre-ordered a copy. So is my wife. <laughs> we live in the same house. Thank you. Hey, you're supporting the cause. <laughs> That's right. Good stuff. Good well, stuff. So to bring into light like other countries that have been trying to get into NATO, Georgia had been supporting the war in Afghanistan since 2005 and were trying to negotiate their maps entry into NATO, um, which might be one of the reasons that Russia decided to invade, which is just pure conjecture of like timeline. Like they started trying to get into NATO in 2005 and they were invaded in 2008. Um, they never joined NATO. They never made it in, um, and they ate all of our bread. So uh, that is 100% a running joke, but it's truth because we started losing all of our food because the Georgians were eating all of it. Um, I got really skinny, though, uh, and they would, no joke, bring out on their trays just stacks of bread, like loaves. Anyway, huge mountains of bread, and uh, we had none. Anyway, um yeah, so I guess I'm the only one on this podcast, not I guess, I'm the only one on this podcast who has been in a war zone and who knows uh, at least a flavor of what Ukrainians are going through right now. Um, and it's awful. Uh, and I don't want to be an American that makes this about me, but <laughs> there is a, I've had quite a few nightmares about um, what it would be like for us to get invaded and what that looks like and my inability to get to my kid, which is 
terrifying. So um, please keep in mind the people of Ukraine who are at home with their children, with their families, and might not have anywhere to go, and they are getting attacked. It is an absolutely awful scenario that I, I know Americans don't really think about themselves. Um, possibility of being invaded is very low because of where we are geographically. Um, but these people don't have that gift of space from Russia. They are right next door. So uh, take care of each other and um, please keep uh, the Ukrainians in your minds and hearts in the next coming weeks as we see how this unfolds.